We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, and we shall continue to consider this revelation, remembering that's what it actually is. We pointed out last Lord's Day how important it is that we understand what kind of a writing we are actually considering. The opening words of the book are the revelation of Jesus Christ, not a revelation of prophecies, not a revelation of mysteries, but it is the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is all about Jesus Christ. And unless we understand that, we are going to go astray and become muddled and confused in our thinking and in our interpretation of this book. It is often referred to and correctly as the Apocalypse, which means the unfolding or the revealing of that which is hidden. This is not a mystery to confuse us. It is a revelation. And it is a very particular revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. Now we need to understand that. Which God, God the Father, gave to his Son, Jesus Christ. Now the author writing to the Hebrews tells us there about the sufferings, the atoning sufferings of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in, in the flesh. And he tells us that for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before Christ in eternity, the joy that was set before him enabled him to endure the cross, despise the shame, and suffer to make a full atonement for the sin of his people. Now, when was the joy set before him? When did the Father set out before Christ? What would cause him to rejoice? What would enable him to persevere through all his sufferings to be able to say, it is finished. I have endured to the end. I have suffered to make an atonement. I have finished the work that the Father gave me to do. Well, what do we read here? The revelation 
of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, but it is also a revelation to Jesus Christ. What is revealed to him is revealed to us about him. We would have no revelation about him unless he had that revelation from God himself. Where did it all begin? Well, when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we have there a promise made to our fallen first parents. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, that well-known portion of truth where God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. This is the first book of the Bible. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. When we come to the book of the Revelation, what do we find? We find a woman bringing forth a man-child and she has to flee to survive and then she is carried by the protective hand of God out of the clutches of her enemy. And we have in Revelation that which connects perfectly with what we have in the beginning in the book of Genesis, which means the book of beginnings. So there is this connection, but what did God say? I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy, uh, thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, why was God able to make such a blessed promise? Because of what had been established in terms of the covenant of redemption back in eternity. And because of what was revealed to the eternal Son of God. The revelation that God gave to him. A revelation of what? A revelation of triumph. A revelation of joy. The joy that would be set before him. The joy that he would anticipate when his work is done, when he has gathered a redeemed people out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and they're all gathered into his presence, and the bride of Christ is completed and made perfect. And the joy the Father revealed to him, his triumph. He would be the seed of the woman, yes, but he would destroy the works of the devil. And so when we come to the book of the Revelation, it is a most precious, precious revelation. Because it is a revelation that God the Father 
give to his son in order that he would persevere to redeem his people. But then, you see, that revelation is given to the church in order that the church will persevere, in order that the church will endure whatever hardships are required in her testimony on the side of truth. And so we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, to show unto God's servants what has been revealed to him, which things must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So God purposed that this revelation that he gives to his son should then be made known and unfolded to the church so that the church might be encouraged to be looking to him, to watch his activities, to be following his ministry, his activities. And who is he? He is the one that is over. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. Verse 5, Jesus Christ, this is the revelation of him to him, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Do we really believe that? Does the church really believe that? Does the, is the church really convinced this is true? You look throughout the nations of the earth, you look at the various governments and all the various types of politics that men are involved in ruling the nations of the earth, and we think, oh, well, they're a stronger nation than that nation. Their particular brand of politics are more fair and just than theirs, and so on. And we think of all the men that have power and women to legislate, either in agreement with God's word or contrary to it, and we become all so alarmed. What's going to happen if this takes place? What will they do? Here's the church's revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him. What did he give to him? He revealed to him that he is the prince of the kings of the earth. He's above them all. He's over every last one of them. He's above them and beyond them and ruling over them. And they've got to be submissive to him. He's doing according to his will in the army of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? This is the revelation we have. Now, it is important to note 
that it is a revelation to Jesus Christ and a revelation to the church of him, but it is a revelation of his unfolding ministry on behalf and his activity on behalf of his church. We looked last week at his offices in chapter 1, the great prophet, priest, and king. He reveals himself to John. But in verse uh, 3 of chapter 1, we read again, Blessed is he that readeth, as we pointed out, the three requirements to read, to hear, to keep. We cannot expect a prophet unless we read and we pay attention and we preserve what we read and what we understand. We preserve it in our minds to guide us and to influence us whatever is taking place around us. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this what? Of this prophecy. It is a revelation that is a prophetic revelation. John, as we noted in verse 19, was instructed to write the things which thou hast seen, which we were particularly emphasizing, the things which are, the things that are in the seven churches, their conditions, and then the things which shall be hereafter. And this is where so many go astray, the things that shall be hereafter. One says this is going to be hereafter. And another says that's what's going to happen. And someone else disagrees and says, no, this is going to happen. This has happened and this has happened. Now this will happen and so on. Now there is absolutely clearly a prophetic element in this book. There are things that were to come to pass beyond the days of John. In fact, they were to come to pass to the very end of time. The revelation to Jesus Christ. What would he expect? That the Father would just tell him so much. Well, you have to die. You have to make an atonement for sin. But when you have done that, well, we'll reveal something further. And then as time progresses, well, we can always reveal more. No, the Father revealed to the Son what the Son could expect. The triumph that would be his to the very end of time when all worlds will be folded up and the end will come. What will have happened? I'm reminded, uh, I understand it was at a university or a seminary. Uh, There was 
an old man. I think he was actually a Negro worker. He was the groundsman or uh, the caretaker. And he was sitting at his lunch in a little corner as the students were coming and going. And some of them noticed he was reading his Bible. So some of these clever students didn't think he was very well educated. He won't know very much. So they went over and they inquired, what what are you actually reading? You're reading your Bible. What are you reading? I'm reading Revelation. And they smiled and they didn't think, well, he, he not know much about that. Revelation. That's a hard, mysterious book. What do you make of it? And of course, they thought they were clever. They would be able to explain things. And the old man just looked up and he said, Jesus is going to win. That's what it's teaching. Jesus is going to win. And that's what it's all about. The triumph, the glorious triumph of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, when we go to the very last chapter of the book of the Revelation, chapter 22, you see there the emphasis is upon the prophetic aspect of this book. Verse 7 Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10. He saith unto me, Seal the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Verse 18. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 19. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy. So we've got to keep that in mind. It is a revelation, but it has most certainly a prophetic element within it pointing us forward to see what Christ has done, what he is doing, and what he is yet still to accomplish. So we are to hear, we are to read, we are to hear, and we are to keep in our minds for our own good, for our edification, what is written in this book. And we come to consider the seven churches, the condition of each. We know, of course, there were more than seven churches in Asia. These are the Gentile churches. There were certainly many more than seven, but these particular seven are singled out. And their condition is brought before us. We are to read about their condition. We are to lay to heart by hearing what the state and condition of these churches really is. 
And we are to keep in mind. We are to learn the lessons and keep in mind what is said to these churches. But before advancing that far, we need to perhaps take a look at the one we mentioned last week as the scribe, the one who is actually required to write this book. God not only reveals his purposes to his son, but the things that are written are of such importance. I mean, can you think of anything more important than the transactions taking place in eternity, in the eternal counsel of the persons of the Godhead. The Father revealing to his Son his glorious redemptive purposes. Wouldn't we want them and wouldn't it be necessary that they would be most accurately conveyed to us? We would want confidence in them. This certainty, this is what God really said. This is what God the Father really revealed to his Son. And this is revealed then to us, conveyed to us accurately, so that we can have absolute confidence this is going to happen. What God told his son would happen is what's going to happen. Nothing less, not, that's, that's how it's going to be. So God will choose the most qualified vessel to be the penman, to be the scribe, to write these things. Write verse 19. This is what John's instructed to do. Write the things which thou hast seen. You've witnessed. What if John didn't pay any attention? What if John just took a casual look? Write the things which you have seen, John. Nothing's to be left out. Everything you've seen, you better record it. Because everything you've seen is important to my people. Everything you've seen about Christ is valid. Because the church needs an accurate knowledge of who he is and what he's doing. The church must have an accurate knowledge, an understanding of her Savior. Now, is that of interest to you, my dear friend? I fear that throughout professing Christendom, in this day there are many people, oh, they talk about Jesus, blessed Jesus, lovely Jesus, Jesus my friend, Jesus my savior. They have no idea who they're talking about because they haven't read 
And they haven't heard. And they haven't paid attention and kept God's revelation of his son. Isn't that what really matters? Who are we going to believe? Some articulate, clever man who's come from the best seminary that's available. He will tell us who Jesus is, all about him. Or will we believe what God has revealed? This is whom you are to believe. This is how I want you to know him. As your great high priest, your great prophet, your great king, who knows what he's doing, who's advancing to the fulfillment of his eternal redemptive work. Now, who is best qualified then to write this revelation? Well, John the Apostle, we already noted, he's in the Isle of Patmos, and he's there for a reason. God has put him there to give him time to write to take him away and remove him even out of the activity of the church, largely to this remote island under persecution. Dominitian, he is the emperor and he's persecuting the church in Asia at this time. And John, perhaps there were other political prisoners as well as John in the Isle of Patmos, but he was there anyway. And he was in the Spirit in the Lord's day. And we noted how he heard this voice as a great trumpet. We considered the significance of it. John's attention must be focused on this work. But why John? Well, you think of it, who else alive knew what John knew. John was the last of the apostles, the last of the personal witnesses. He was the man who had been leaning on the Savior's bosom, the man who'd been in the Mount of Transfiguration, the man who'd been one of the three closest to the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. John was a man of large experience in the life of the church. He's an old man now. He would have been in his 80s at this time, years of age. Years and years of experience. You go back to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, there you see John engaged in the early activities of the church. And we learn there uh, what spirit uh, John was of, along with Peter. In Acts chapter 4, you remember the 
opposition from the Sanhedrin to the preaching of the apostles. And Peter and John were hauled before the Sanhedrin because they were preaching. Verse 18 of Acts 4, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. What is is John's reaction and Peter's? Did John say, well, you have the authority, you are the ecclesiastical powers, and so we will be submissive, we will acquiesce in your ruling? What did John and Peter say? Verse 19, Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God, to hearken unto you more than unto God judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now there's John as a young man in his early ministry. And this is the spirit he's of. Now, you think of him at this advanced age. You could sit down with John. You could ask John, tell us what it was like when Jesus fed the 5,000. <coughs> John could do that. Tell us what it was like. Give us more details, John, what it was like when you were in the Mount of Transfiguration. John can fill us in in all the details. Tell us what it was like, John, when you were standing before the Sanhedrin and they were forbidding you to preach. How did you feel? He could tell us. What was it like, John, at the great council in Jerusalem when there was a debate about circumcision and what was required of the Gentile Christians? Had they to become Jewish proselytes. Well, John would be able to explain everything. Tell us what the atmosphere was like. Tell us who were the main speakers on the floor of that great uh, gathering. He could tell us, you see, what no one else would be able to tell us. He was a man of wide experience in the life of the church. But as we said, he'd been in the Mount of Transfiguration. And he knew a little at least of the glory that the Savior was going to enter into, his heavenly glory. And now he sees him in this glory. He sees him afresh. And as we noted, when verse 17 of chapter 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me, his nail-pierced hand. He laid that hand on me. And what did he do? He laid his hand upon me. It wasn't just merely to strengthen him. He laid his hand upon him as he commissioned him. You read of when Paul is writing the pastoral epistles, 
He refers to the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, the hands commissioning, commissioning to a particular work. And here is John being commissioned by the head and the king of the church himself. This John is a solemn commission. You better get this right, John. You better be sure, John, that the church has nothing but the truth. And it is so solemn that when we come to the last chapter, what do we read there? Verse 18, I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things... God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Now, very often, men use these texts out of context. Uh, And uh, we know what they mean, but sometimes they say this is a, a statement regarding the whole complete revelation of truth that we can't add to it or take from it. Now, that is true. But in the context of how the Savior commissioned John and what he was commissioned to do, we understand how dare anyone add to this or how dare anyone take anything from it because of the very nature of the revelation. It has got to be accurate. And John, uh, we read, any man, he says, shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and so on. Why is the glorified Christ saying this? Because I have commissioned John. And I have laid my hand upon him. And I have raised him and given him the strength and the grace to write this revelation. Not a mystery to confuse men, but a glorious, encouraging revelation. Now, not only is John the most appropriate in the sense he's the most experienced and the most knowledgeable possible to write it. But he has the right attitude to the one who commissions him. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. When I saw him, I was impressed by him. And every line John wrote, every word he recorded, he would never lose sight of that vision. He knew why he was writing. And he understood on whose behalf he was writing. When I saw him, 
I could never forget him. And every word he wrote, he was writing it as though he were in the very presence of that one, the majesty of that one that he saw. And so his experience would enable him to record accurately this important revelation. But then, something else about John. Remember, he's the only remaining apostle. No one can come near him in their experience in church life in their knowledge of Christ's person and his ministry and so on. Now, I know from experience, because I've seen it so often, in church life and in church courts, you find the men of years and experience thinking they know everything. And very often they almost look down on those I was around, son, long before you. And I know many things that you don't know anything about. And you better give place to me. And you better listen to me. And you better pay attention because I am one of the fathers in the church. And maybe if we go outside our Presbyterianism, we might find, I am the bishop, or I am the archbishop. I am very important. Here's John. Words are really, truly gracious. Remember who he is, where he is. He's in the Isle of Patmos. Because the church is suffering and the church is being persecuted. And how does John record this revelation? Who's writing it? Verse 9 of chapter 1. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. We don't read, I, John, the Apostle, or I, John, the last of the Apostles, I, John, 85, 86 years old, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a ruler in the church. A spokesman again and again for the church. He doesn't draw attention to all his qualifications and all his qualities, nor his experiences, his knowledge. No, I, John, who also am your brother, who also am your brother, I'm just on the same level as you. You might be just a young man or a young woman, 20 years of age, being persecuted 
for the sake of Christ. And I'm well in my 80s, but I'm just your brother. We are all members of Christ's family. That's how it should really be. That's one of the reasons you've heard me maybe say before, I'm not very enamored with the titles of the clergy, and that's why I don't much like being called reverend. I believe that there is a bond between the children of God and the members of Christ's family. And here's John, does he just accidentally write what he does, just happens to overlook something and just forgets how important a person he is in the church. I, John, who also am your brother and your companion. It's as though he's emphasizing it. I'm your brother. And I am your companion. Now, one thing I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear the people in the congregation addressing me as George. That's my name, true enough. But the ministers of Christ do have an office. And it's out of respect for the office that they are given that respect. Not because they're better not because they're more important in the life of the church, but simply because of the office of the elder, the ruling elder. The church courts are real courts. You know, some people, I've heard people ask me, why did the old ministers dress in black jackets and striped trousers and... uh, Why did they wear little white bows and so on? This was the clerical garb in the past. Why did they do it? Was it a tradition? Was it just that they might show their superiority and so on? The reason was because when they attended the courts of the church, Presbyterian, the courts of the Presbyterian church, the Kirk Session, the Presbytery, the Synod, the General Assembly, these were church courts. They're often referred to as courts of review. If someone is feeling they've been unjustly treated in a decision taken by the Kirk Session, the lowest court, then they can appeal to the higher court, the presbytery. And the presbytery is the court of appeal. It deals with the appeal. And it may rescind or overturn the decision of the inferior court. But the thing is, they are real courts. They deal with real cases. They apply real laws to do 
real justice. Now, how did the members of the civil courts appear? Black jackets, striped trousers, little bows. They were recognized as the members of the judiciary. That's where our Presbyterian rulers got their garb from. In the Presbyterian church, was recognized. They have office. They rule. They apply real laws. They are in, uh, required to produce real justice. That's one thing I'm not on for unnecessary tradition and in bondage to many things that others may be in bondage to. But I think sometimes we display our ignorance when we find fault with some of these things and think they're irrelevant, they're a nonsense. Maybe we need to go back to our Bibles. Maybe we need to go back and figure out what do elders actually do? What do church courts really do? Are they just little assemblies? And they just like to meet together for a bit of a conversation? And if they're up to it, a good debate, and they fall out, and they argue, and they disagree, and whatever, they are church courts. But getting back here to John, he's writing to the seven churches in Asia, and they are really suffering. They are really suffering. They are being persecuted, they're being imprisoned, and it seems the Roman emperor, that vicious emperor, is out to destroy the church. What's going to become of them? John is here commissioned to write. And how does he write? These letters, this communication, comes from John, your brother. I feel for you, I empathize and sympathize with you. I am at one with you. I'm involved in the suffering too. I am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John doesn't write merely as an authority or someone with superior authority in the church, I am your brother and your companion. We are of one mind. We are of one spirit. We are of one heart. We love the one cause. We are bound up with Christ. This is the one He is to write 
to the seven churches. And he would write, Then I am your brother and your companion. I want you to get the comfort from what I write that I receive from it. I want you to see the Christ that I have seen. I want to convey to you what I have seen and how it has affected me, how it has instilled courage and uh, stamina into me to persevere. Though I'm an old man, the same spirit motivates me as was motivating me when I had to stand uh, before the Sanhedrin, persecuted by them. Now it is not the Sanhedrin. It's the mighty emperor himself. But I'm still of the same mind, uncompromising in the knowledge and defense of the truth. Now then, the first church that he writes to is the church at Ephesus. Remember, these, this is a, a letter, a prophetic revelation, but it also contains letters to seven churches. Now, if you get a map out and you uh, are able to identify in that map uh, the various churches in Asia, you will find there are others mentioned, but these seven are on a particular route, beginning with Ephesus and going right round to the church in Laodicea. And it was what was known in John's time as the postal route. Post would go by this route from one city to the other, right round in a, in a circle, as it were, almost like the shape of a, of a horseshoe, from one city to the other. It was the postal route. And so naturally, when these letters are sent to the churches, they go by that postal route. They would be carried by horsemen, postal deliverers, right round uh, these churches. Now, John had a special interest in the church in Ephesus. That's where he had lived, from which he probably was taken when he was here put in the Isle of Patmos. And John himself would have some experience of the church in Ephesus. And he would know who the bishop of Ephesus was, namely Timothy, and he would know of Paul's labors there, and you go back in the uh, book uh, to the book of the Acts. Uh, there you see in chapter 16 uh, how God controls the whole ministry in connection with His church. In Acts chapter 16, we're told there of Paul's intention at one point. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. 
You see, these churches didn't come into existence accidentally. Nor did they come into existence simply because they were planned by men, even the best of men. Paul intended to go into Asia long before the head of the church planned it. But you see, Paul had to learn God knows because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he knew when the work would start in Ephesus. And he knew how to establish it in Ephesus. And so Paul, he was of a mind, well, let's go to Ephesus. We can start the church in Ephesus. No, the head of the church says, it's not time yet, Paul. But then when you go over to Acts chapter 20, what do we find there? There's a well-established church in Ephesus, and Paul calls the elders, and he reminds them that he'd been there ministering for three years. He'd been ministering among them for three years. Now, no other church had the amount of attention, the degree of attention given to it that was given to the church in Ephesus. And it became, as it were, the main church in Asia for a considerable time. It influenced others. It's believed it was responsible in establishing other uh, churches throughout Asia. When Paul was leaving the church in Ephesus, he issued warnings to the elders there. He told them of their solemn obligations and responsibilities. Now when we come 40 years later to hear what the head of the church has to say about Ephesus, What does he say? Verse 2 of of Revelation 2. I know thy works. I know. Do you want to know? I know. Do you want to know what I know? That's a question. This was a real church. This was not some kind of a fantasy that came into the mind of John. This is a real, true, genuine church. And it has its own particular spiritual experience and history and its own peculiar condition just as we have here in this congregation. And who knows what that condition really is. If you were to say to me, Minister, what do you think of the congregation in Grafton? What would you expect me to say? Well, you've been here ministering, you've got to know the people. What do you think? What do you really think of the congregation? 
What do you think of him? What do you think of her? What do you think of them? What do you think of that family? What do you think of that father? What do you think of that, that mother, whatever? What do you think? You'd maybe just love to hear what I think. But I can tell you something I won't be telling you. But there is someone who knows perfectly. He says, I know. And furthermore, I know what many others don't know. In fact, I know what the church itself doesn't even seem to know. What do you think he knows? Maybe we don't want to know. I don't want to know what Christ thinks of our church. I don't want to hear what he thinks about me. I don't want to know what he knows about my family. I don't want to know what he knows about my business, about my life, about my conduct. I don't want to know. But here's what John has to write. I'm conveying to you in Ephesus the most accurate knowledge available about your condition. You will never be able to improve in this. You will never have anything to add to it and you better not take anything away from it. I am conveying to you the most accurate knowledge that is available about your spiritual condition in the church in Ephesus. Do we come to God's house to find out what Christ knows about us? Or is that irrelevant? So long as I feel all right myself, so long as no one's criticizing me that I know of, so long as no one suspects anything to be wrong with me, I'm fine, I'm comfortable. Well, the head of the church obviously intended to make the church in Ephesus feel a little uncomfortable. He told them the truth. My, my, my. How many churches today want the truth? How many preachers today are prepared to tell the truth? How do we really appear before God? the one to whom we are really accountable. I know thy works. Well, at least he knew they worked. <laughs> the, the Christ knew, at least, this is an active church in Ephesus. They're doing something. I know thy works. 
He didn't say, I know that in Ephesus you become a lazy bunch. I know in Ephesus you don't engage in very many activities for my kingdom. No, I know thy works. And I give credit where credit is due and honor where honor is due. And I know thy labor. You work hard as a church. And I know thy patience. You have graces in Ephesus, the grace of patience. And you're steadfast and orthodox and sound. Among the seven churches, they all have a particular characteristic. And the church in Ephesus is the orthodox church. It's the Orthodox Church, the church that is concerned to preserve the faith. And yet, the head of the church says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. I, yes, I have somewhat against thee. Ephesus, do you want to know what he has against you? Child of God today, do you want to know what he might have against you? Do you? Because John has to tell them, well, could I not leave that little bit out? I like the people in Ephesus. I don't want to tell them that the Savior is something against them. That will disturb them. That will annoy them. That will trouble them. That will make them feel very uncomfortable. John, you better tell them, and there better not be one word left out, nor anything added. You tell them, John. Tell them. While everything outwardly looks fine, there is a problem internally in the church in Ephesus. Now we shall have to leave it there and come into it more fully at a future date, but remember the solemnity in the background to this, these letters. We must take them seriously. And if we don't, then there will be consequences. It's as simple as that. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we pray for thy blessing upon thy word that we might understand it. Do thou give us hearing ears and understanding hearts. And, O, do thou open the eyes of our understanding that we might see our Savior and open our ears that we might hear him even when he rebukes. O, may we be enabled to honestly inquire whether the Savior may have something against ourselves. O, do thou speak to us. Speak For thy servant heareth. May this
be our attitude each one. Bless thy truth to us. Pardon us, receive us. For Christ's sake, amen.